Hello, Molly here. Welcome to Say It Skillfully, helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. I am ecstatic to finally have the chance to host my very special guest today. Talk about being the change you want to see in the world. She's a social entrepreneur extraordinaire for whom more than three decades has been at the forefront of tackling homelessness. Her intensive on-the-ground training has enabled her to see the root causes and to iterate on workable solutions. Few in the world comprehensively understand homelessness as she does. And with a patient persistence, it's no surprise the organization she founded is partnering with 89 U.S. communities. Over half have already achieved measurable reductions. 14 have reached functional zero, which we'll learn more about in chronic and or veteran homelessness. In April 2021, the MacArthur Foundation awarded the organization the prestigious 100 and Change Award, $100 million over five years to accelerate a lasting end to homelessness as a way of life. It's been a privilege to serve on the board, and I couldn't be more honored to introduce the president and CEO of New York-based Community Solutions, Roseanne Haggerty. Roseanne, welcome to Say It Skillfully. Thank you, Molly. Thanks for having me. Oh, this is such a delight, and I can't wait for listeners to learn from you. There's lots to share uh, that will help them realize that homeless is not an intractable problem and how they can be part of the solution. Before we go there, though, you've always been so humble about yourself. So I'd appreciate if you turn the spotlight on you for just a bit and give listeners a glimpse of your own life journey. Well, I grew up in the Hartford, Connecticut area. I'm the oldest of eight children and uh, certainly very significant to the, the way my interest in this issue was formed and um, persisted was uh, the example of my parents. Uh, when we were kids, uh, they really had an eye out for uh, these elderly individuals who lived in uh, downtown Hartford, single room occupancy hotels and boarding homes and a whole collection of people who had spent the holidays at, at our home and uh, in the suburbs and uh, people who you know, weren't homeless at the time, but uh, really relied on very uh, kind of fringy housing, which I think my brothers and sisters and I were the only uh, children in the area who kind of understood that these types of living arrangements were so ubiquitous in cities and so essential to keeping uh, very poor, isolated people's head above water in terms of uh, basic housing. And so uh, when I was graduating from college, it was actually in the early 80s that homelessness was emerging as, a, as a, a, an issue with a name, frankly, and a growing problem in American cities. And uh, it, it really resonated for me as something that I sort of fundamentally understood because the people who were actually becoming homeless were people who you know, were, were no longer finding that kind of housing. In New York City, for instance, tax policy had incented the conversion of all of the single room, uh, single room occupancy and cubicle hotel and other types of arrangements in, in, in that city. It was typical of many places. And, and then, of course, you'd also begin to see uh, uh, individuals with you know, serious mental health challenges on the street. And these were new problems in the early 80s. And so that combination of having uh, parents who modeled, you see problems of, of you know, this nature of 
you know, fragile people without a safety net, you step in and a growing issue. I felt very drawn to it and uh, initially thought I would just spend a year uh, as a volunteer to shelter. Uh, uh, there's this program at a youth shelter in Times Square that would provide room and board and $12 a week if you lived and worked there and helped as a counselor with uh, the, the under 21 year olds who were seeking shelter there. And so I did that uh, again, thinking I would just go on to something more traditional, but that, that year was quite decisive for, for sort of surprising reasons, Molly, that uh, I, in interacting with these, these young people who are more or less my age, uh, we had been set up as this 30 day emergency shelter because yeah, the very good people running the program uh, thought that, that this was a crisis and 30 days ought to be enough time to sort yourself out. But in interacting with these young people, it was clear that no one had 30 day problems. You know, they, their families had, had collapsed. There's already kind of hints of what we see and kind of uh, the effects of mass incarceration, lots of parents in jail, uh, drug issues. This was, um, you know, just before crack and AIDS became the, the dominant, uh, you know, uh, kind of social challenges of that period. Uh, and uh, I was there thinking, we've got this wrong. You know, all of us well-intentioned folks here who are providing emergency services don't exactly have a, uh, the, the right uh, uh, mindset or the right understanding or the ability possibly to listen to what young people are uh, experiencing and, and design the program from that point of view. So that, that experience uh, just put me on a path to stay with this issue and had me believing based on my own experience that it wasn't a problem that was out without a solution, but that we, those of us who, who were troubled and cared about the issue just were coming at it incorrectly uh, without a sense of its complexity and the uh, failure perhaps to ask the right questions about you know, what, were, what were the drivers of the problem uh, and to get out of that reactive space. So that's in many ways what uh, my work has been around about ever since, just trying to get out of that reactive space and into the problem solving space for an issue that's entirely solvable. Well, before I have some questions there, I just do want to go back to the early household days because eight children is a, is a lot of children. And so I'm, I'm wondering what the dynamic was in, in your family where there's a big age range. Did older ones take care of little ones? Cause that's a, that's a big crew. Uh, it's a big crew and we're all very close. Uh, uh, I, I'm 12 years older than my youngest sister. Um, and uh, yeah, we got along uh, amazingly well. I will say you're right. That d dynamic is pretty typical in a large family. I, I, I think my uh, my self perception was as uh, sort of junior mom and uh, in you know in charge of uh, you know, seeing that uh, the younger kids or you know the, the kids generally you know stayed uh, stayed safe and out of trouble but uh, you know really over time it, it's been lovely to see this just sense of mutual care uh, so. Uh, but yeah, that, that was definitely formative. And I think that is how I kind of approach life, Molly, of kind of like the big sister, like, okay, I'll take responsibility here, even if no one's asked me. <laughs> I appreciate knowing this about you because, you know, we, we go way back and it does help illuminate how you are. So you know, there's this kind of 
quiet, okay, we can make this work. You know, <laughs> nothing's too big of a deal to handle. Um, I am very impressed that, you know, and I, with your parents, obviously wonderful example that you, fo- you kind of connected the dots early as a young person had that sense of this isn't something that's not solvable. Um, and I'm wondering, as you were working in your early days, you know, this, this quote unquote, you know, 30 day assignment that you were going to do when you saw people who may have really just misunderstood it, not quite got it. How did you, how did you handle that? Did you try to help people understand? I mean, it's obviously been a differentiator in your work and why, why it's so successful, obviously, but I'm wondering early on as a young person, were you able to kind of have conversations with those who are kind of running the thing to say, Hey, you know, I'm seeing something different. I, I did. And it was so valuable and instructive in, in, in so many ways. I feel as though, you know, the, the pattern, you know, that sort of began there continues to repeat. Uh, the, my first awareness, Molly was like, I must be missing something. You know, I'm, I'm new here. I'm, I'm just a kid myself, but you know, does this make sense to anyone that, you know, we're, we're, we're seeing ourselves as successful when these young people are here for 30 days, they have to go back to where they came from, usually the street for 30 days before they could come back for 30 days. And that that would be seen as successful. I was like, this is crazy. Uh, And, but the, 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 the challenge as well, you know, in trying to understand what I was seeing was I was surrounded by incredibly committed good people who either on the paid staff who were you know working long hours at the shelter or among the other volunteers who you know just were devoted to trying to do something to help uh, interestingly this place was entirely privately funded and it had money rolling in and so it wasn't a case of well, we're doing our best with a few pennies we can rub together. It was actually making decisions around expansion without any real self-reflection on, you know, is what we're doing working? So it, it, after about the first two months, I, you know, it was, I, I finally started you know, speaking up to some of the other volunteers who'd been there longer and actually was uh, within a few months, I, you know, sort of someone who was my boss, said, why aren't we helping these young people find housing? Everyone that I'm interacting with says that is the number one issue, not crisis services. And he was uh, you know, indulgent. Uh, and in the sense that I started you know, just calling organizations in New York who worked on housing and trying to figure out how we could uh, you know, connect with them. And it was an early uh, exposure to how fragmented the world of you know, housing and other services outside our shelter uh, actually was. Um, I remember going through, you know, uh, just uh, this is of course before the internet, going before, through various uh, directories and you know, all of these different programs had rules around, well, someone who has this profile and is remanded by this situation or someone who actually is of this age group and has this diagnosis, you know, there, there were dozens and dozens of programs, uh, very few of which actually fit the circumstances of most of the young people at the shelter. 
Uh, and there were very complicated ways that you ha had to access these programs. Uh, I, yeah, so I, I called many of them to try to understand how these rules worked and just realized what a maze it was. And then also, you know, uh, finally went back to my boss and said, you know, I, I think we have to skip this. I think we have to actually find out who's a building housing and talk directly to them. And again, he was kind of like indulgent, like, all right, look into it. And I remember calling and getting a hold of a few folks at not-for-profit housing organizations who... Um, some of them, some of whom were very, very nice to me, actually, but many were like, who are you exactly? Are you a, a, a calling an, an official capacity? And so I just it kind of appreciated early on that um, it wasn't that people were at, at this program sort of rejecting the idea that we needed to do more, but it like wasn't in their job. It wasn't what they were focused on. The external world needed to be organized in a new way to even create better linkages. Uh, so, uh, but my, my kind of doggedness around saying we need to focus on housing, I wasn't really able to get anyone at that time in the organization thinking that that should be an organizational concern or commitment. Interestingly, within about uh, 10 years, the organization did start working on transitional housing uh, and, and sponsoring it themselves. Now that it's better than what, you know, more than 30 days. It, it wasn't actually the, the linkage to housing. But uh, it gave me an appreciation, appreciation Molly, that often uh, uh, you know, lack of progress isn't the result of active opposition, but just sort of passivity and institutional inertia. Yeah, I'm, I'm just, I'm really like, I'm heavy with you in the sense that, because I, you know, we, we always want to be able to move a little bit faster and mm -hmm. To your point, people are good people and want to do the right things, but it's once there's a way of working, mm -hmm. it can be really hard to pull people out. And it's also threatening. I remember, you know, some folks who we didn't even get to the conversation of like, should we be focusing on more permanent, you know, solutions to help these young people, um, and and which would require housing as a fundamental layer. Like, how would a job or you know dealing with health issues or reconnecting, you know, in a, with a stable adult relationship, how would any of that happen without a stable place to live? And so it wasn't that anyone was saying that housing wasn't important, but it was absolutely for some very challenging that my questions were heard as um, we're not doing a good job or are you criticizing me? An important lesson I think about, you know, you know, saying it skillfully, how do you communicate with good people who are actually um, inadvertently colluding with the wrong intervention? Yeah, well, let's just go there. Normally I save this till later, but I think we're there. And this really is so fundamental as listeners have heard me say, because when we're responding to others in a way that might seem not so rational at the core, it is about an individual's relationship with themselves. And to your point, even if that's not your intention, and even if it might've been said, you know, in a really great way, if people aren't as secure in themselves, they can turn that into a story that as well, I'm not good. I'm not worthy. I'm not doing a good job. And those, that, that fundamental, that that exists really does, I think as a big stop sign to mm -hmm. um, having a conversation about the situation, what's really going on. And so I think for folks who are 
you know, and obviously folks know, I really applaud those who are out there trying to create change. I think, you know, coming in with this um, extreme sense of appreciation and acknowledgement in the most authentic way. And the person, the receiver has to feel that, right? So it's not a a kitschy little thing. Oh, I know you're doing a great job. It's got to be saying, you know, I've seen this, I've seen that. I really appreciate how everyone here is doing this. I'm, you know, new here, or I'm, you know, had an epiphany overnight and I see something different. I'd love to be able to put it out there for all of us to consider, because I know at our cart, we really want to do the right thing and help these people. And I don't want to have happen that anyone feels like I'm being critical or I know it all or what have you. And I think the transparency up front is almost 80% of the challenge. And if you can get people to realize that this is really serving the cause that here we are all trying to, to work so hard for, there's the opening. And I think that that's the key thing to, to at the outset. And so from that point, it can be like, here's what I'm noticing. Gosh, let me know if I'm not seeing this the right way, or let's have other people chime in. So we create this 360 view because I would, I would hate for us to kind of go down a path without having um, a well-informed situation. So I just pause there. How does that land for you? Absolutely. Uh, and let me say, I am still learning this uh, about how to uh, really engage folks in that place of I've committed so much of my professional time to this, my passion to this. And you're saying like, what I'm doing is wrong. You know, how not to trigger that? Uh, and I think it absolutely is the case, as you, you suggest, Molly, that if you can start from appealing to the original intentions, like what are we trying to do here? What what's at stake, and what is it we all want? You know that 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 is the only place I think out of which that kind of openness can 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 flow. Yeah, but uh, it's sometimes hard to get there. One of the things that I I find is an important um, frame for these conversations is to talk about the the work of ending homelessness as in some ways an evolutionary journey. We just know more now than we did in the 80s about what's actually going on. And that to say, all right, there's new information. You know, we've we've all all of us working in this field, we've you know kind of seen different strategies come and go, but what really is getting results that if you speak about it, not as a binary, like my way is better than your way, but you know, how we have you know, evolved our understanding of what's actually you know, driving this, this issue in our society, uh, that, um, that, that that notion of, of uh, kind of a process in some ways, you know, for many can help them step back from a sense of the competition of ideology or ideas to a more honest, you know, kind of collective examination of like, what have we figured out and how do we do more of what works? I love it. You've articulated it beautifully. The transparency of what's out there, this notion of calling out, hey, we have new information. We didn't have it before, right? And so now that we know it, what could we do? And I also want to encourage folks to create transparency of the feeling. So if you feel that there may have been triggered a sense of defensiveness um, or a sense of competition, it's great to say, hey, I just want to say something right up front. If I have 
inadvertently created a sense of anyone's not doing the right thing or not trying hard. Wow, bad on me. That and I, I'm feeling a little bit of that. And I'm just going to ask if that's if that's going on for you, which I understand. You know, please do your best to know, right, that that's not what I'm trying to do. And I think calling that sometimes people are like, oh my gosh, and they don't want to talk about the big elephant on the table. And I'm like, the the more you can get it out there in a kind um, and caring way helps people start to realize, yeah, you know what? I got it. I'm, I'm just responding. I'm I'm feeling defensive because I'm making it about me and say, Hey, that's okay. We all have egos and sometimes egos serve us. Sometimes egos don't, but let's see, let's get that out in the open and try to move forward on what helps our cause. Um, okay. Thank you for raising that. Um, I'd love to get a sense, you know, you can talk about this, the early days on Times Square is very different than I think almost the Disneyland sort of effect that, that Times Square has now. So could you just paint a picture for us when you, you know, trying to, to get people into housing and just a bit of the frontline experience, please? Sure. Well, uh, the first a big project with the the first not-for-profit I started back in 1990 was um, the acquisition and uh, rehabilitation of the old Times Square Hotel, which was the city's largest single room occupancy hotel on the corner of 43rd and 8th. And it was known in the press then as homeless hell. And you had this building that had, uh, I think it opened in 1923 for years, had been this place where People who worked in the theater or journalists, you know, could live in you know these very small rooms with you know most with shared baths for something you know quite modest on a weekly or monthly basis, and then in the 80s, as you know, the the building changed hands, you know, in terms of ownership many times, and this this New York City law that I mentioned really created incentives for that and other buildings to be converted to. Uh, co-ops or higher, what were perceived as higher value kind of housing arrangements. And the building, you know, just saw this terrible stretch of these, by that point, mainly elderly and or mentally ill people for whom this was, you know, the, the only place they could afford being forcibly displaced, um, intimidated out. And then as the building emptied out, the city of New York at that point, uh, and, and sadly, history is repeating itself now. Is it was in a position of of just grabbing you know whatever properties were available to house homeless families and providing no services, barely any security. And so, when our project you know came on the scene, at the Times Square was in bankruptcy. A whole floor had been burned out. It was a scene of like just regular arrests. Something like four hundred families were in the course of being moved out because the environment was so unsafe and it left these very just traumatized about 200 single adults who had nowhere else to go and so it had struck me as such an important building to save and that it's it could have a a a very uh, strong and important future as something that was just emerging and I worked in the intervening years between that shelter experience I described and, and starting the first not-for-profit common ground as an affordable housing developer and had been part of a team that uh, was looking at trying to rescue or recreate some of these kind of modest accommodations for uh, single people experiencing homelessness uh, but 
that would provide more than an affordable unit, but would actually add mental health and health workers and a very you know, kind of a safe environment to really take the management of these properties seriously so that people could actually rebuild their lives and not just be left with the only options of congregate shelters or the streets. And so the proposal for the Times Square Hotel was to do this at you know a very large scale, that over 700 rooms. And uh, the proposal that I developed was to convert it into full studio uh, efficiency apartments so that every unit would have its own bath and to have you know, those original tenants you know, remain, to have half of the new units created before individuals coming from homelessness and to have the other half be for individuals who were you know, low-wage workers largely connected with the, the Times Square community. And so sort of improbably, this plan for a very large initiative sitting right next to the New York Times building at the time won a lot of support from the local civic and business community. Uh, I think because I was just very transparent with you know the, how the building would operate, how the project could be funded, who would live there, uh, how you know, security and other issues would be handled. Remember, the fear then was not of those who would live in the building, but of the neighborhood itself, Times Square in 1990-91 was a pretty dangerous place. And before, as you say, Molly, the Disneyfication. While I was the one kind of pulling this together, I have to say it was absolutely the case that, you know, but for a very, um, you know, extraordinary team, a terrific organization called uh, CUCS was providing, had stepped up to say they would provide the on-site support services. We had really, you know, strong um, consultants involved who had uh, renovated um, buildings with tenants in place and had managed large-scale properties. Actually, a commitment to restore the building to its uh, historic uh, grandeur, you know, despite the fact that it had fallen on such hard times. There, it was really a beautiful old building. And the um, the project received uh, the city's support. It was more ambitious than anything that they had supported for people experiencing homelessness at that point. But it uh, there was no arguing that without some more ambitious solutions, the problem would continue to get worse without remedy. And so that, um, it was an amazing experience. I have to say the most memorable part of those years was working with those original tenants who had to be won over and be part of the team uh, to you know, cooperate with a lot of noise and construction and all of that you know, uh, disruption and to welcoming new uh, residents, some of whom they felt, you know, very anxious about people coming from this, uh, the street or shelters. And so really forming a, a strong workable community there was um, basically, it was about just solving the problems in front of you one day at a time, but with a, a plan that was really about a vision of um, not a big building, but a small community and how that could be made to function so that everyone there could actually put their lives back on track and, and you know, feel supported. And then we went from there to build, gosh, by the time I left, uh, about 3,000 units overall. No doubt about it, this notion of permanent supportive housing, of which the Times Square Hotel was an example, is a fundamental ingredient in the, the journey ahead to end homelessness. And it's become a very known, accepted strategy for helping people overcome homelessness, especially those who have 
chronic health and mental health problems. Not, not everyone needs that level of support for sure, but for those who do, it is uh, a lifesaver. Wow. Up to 3000 units. So you're such a, what I love about you, you're so steady, calm and 700 units. We got the entire city and all the funders to support it. So take us through that as a leader, talk to us about, you know, getting people on board with something that's never been done before. And is would be like highly, highly, highly ambitious. Well, I could just see the finished product. That clarity um, was really helpful, how the different parts could connect. And again, this wasn't coming from nowhere because I've been working with this amazing group that I'd worked at in, in Brooklyn on doing smaller scale versions of this because it was just like me and my you know, whatever early version of home computer I had in my my back bedroom, you know, cooking this up. Uh, yeah, it was just um, a wonderful experience to know like what, what should happen here as opposed to who do I have to satisfy? You know, because it was so improbable, it was, um, you know, just kind of a, a blank slate with respect to how this, you know, project could come together and what the problems would likely be, how that could be mitigated. And so, one of the things that dogs everyone who works in affordable housing is um, nimbyism. And a, it, it becomes a bit of a vicious cycle, of course, because you're, you're very cautious about sitting down with community residents and um, kind of sharing your plans for fear of the blowback. But because, you know, this was so improbable and had had nothing to lose. The first thing I did was, you know, as I, you know, kind of put this together, uh, was to contact the local community board and the neighboring property owners and say, here's this idea, you know, uh, I think it could happen, you know, here's what would have to happen in order for it to, to work. What do you think? And those individuals were so, I think I was also very lucky that they were, you know, generous, big thinkers. Uh, it, it so happened, and you know that can happen. You know, you, you'll find early advocates, but I think they were so struck that this was like a man bites dog story. That I was actually going to seek their thoughts, advice, work in their concerns, react to them, as opposed to assuming that they would be opposed to um, a, a very large and uh, potentially, and we hope, impactful. Uh, 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 residents for the homeless, that I had uh, just incredible um, uh, support and, and uh, buy-in from the very people who the conventional wisdom would say would, you know, their first ge gesture would be to hire lawyers to, to block a project. But they, you know, uh, just responded so well to the invitation to help shape something that uh, could make such a difference in not just the community, but in this issue in New York. And I will say it, it made a difference, Molly, but this is going to be true in any kind of similar situation. That building, if, if, if nothing happened, the building was still a problem. It, it still had you know, drug deals going down. It still had no, poor security. It was still a, 
a hazard because of people taking advantage of this sort of ungoverned space where these, you know, these poor, you know, existing tenants were just, you know, kind of huddling and in fear. And so what I was offering was a solution to a problem that they realized was a real one in their community. And that in some ways the co-creation of a solution um, was pivotal to getting uh, that that unlikely group of allies on board. Uh, the um, I'll say another important part of that outreach was meeting with the original tenants. Um, the uh, and the building was a shambles. There had to be a few twists and turns with the ownership of the building before we were able to acquire it to even enable uh, me and you know, the the wonderful group that you know came together to to, to really drive this. Uh, so when we finally had uh, access to the building and could pull together some meetings to which we invited you know, the tenants, it was, um, we drew our inferences about tenant concerns and their, their situation from the group that came, which was the most, you know, we would have maybe 50 to 60 people come to these meetings in the lobby. You know, we'd have to you know, find folding chairs because the furniture had been stripped bare, it was full of garbage, it was awful. But, you know, the, these 50 to 60 tenants who would come would, you know, be angry and, you know, certainly they'd been through like five or six owners at that point in a short period of time. So initially I was like, like, I'm so nice. Why are they all angry at me? I'm just, but, <laughs> but they're like, right, we, we've heard this story before and nothing has ever worked out as promised. But sort of absorbing their anger, their fear, um, uh, and, and, and also kind of workshopping the plan about what would be meaningful to them uh, in terms of the design was important. But it was also striking that, you know, and an important lesson learned, who didn't come to those meetings? Because there were about 200 tenants at that point. And it was only after we had actually acquired the building and you know, went through the process. Our first thing, going door to door, introducing ourselves to tenants, that we realized just the horrific health problems and ment untreated mental health needs of many of the tenants um, who you know were were unable, fearful to actually come out and seek help and uh, or be part of these conversations. So it ended up being a much more complex and frankly, you know, urgent and sort of an important project just to help those folks who'd been so abandoned in the building. So there was a whole layer of that experience that we sort of missed because of, you know, who we, we didn't speak to uh, in, in preparing to take over the building. Oh, powerful, powerful insight. And I'm, I'm wondering how you helped your own resilience because you can see people in a really tough spot you are a very empathetic, very compassionate soul. So um, how did you keep yourself high, you know, and not feeling, you know, really, really bad about uh, what these people were going through? Well, I think it was the fact that we had such a good team. You know, I mentioned the organization CUCS, our social services partner, that it wasn't a situation where you'd be like, oh my God, that woman has 
you know, uh, you know, or, or has gangrene. You know, like we we would find, like we found folks in such horrible condition, um, and uh, because like we were not bystanders. You know, it was just like, oh my god, yeah, like what has to happen, and and we'd be able to accompany people. You know, and in, in getting the treatment they needed at the hospital, set up relationships with local clinics, uh, because we were in this um, situation of action and responsibility, it wasn't like going to, to witness this building and say, oh my God, someone needs to do something. Like basically we had signed up to be the people who would do something. So it was, it was actually, you know, as heartbreaking and horrifying as it was, it was um, that we were in a place to be able to take action um, was uh, was powerful, it, it, you know. When you consider the feeling we all have when walking past someone experiencing homelessness and in distress, you know, in the streets of New York, and that feeling of helplessness, well, that wasn't us. You know, we actually had enough control of the situation. You know, they lived in a building we had just acquired that we basically, as landlords, it's just like it's on us, and uh, we were able to. Um, you know, take action, the kind of action that I think we all wish we were in a position or, you know, had, had some authority to take as we see someone in distress on the street. Yeah, I love how you've always, always owned it. Um, so I would love you to take folks through your learning journey, because it started as putting people into housing, and the current model is a far cry from that. And so perhaps take us through that before we get to our little homelessness primer. Well, um, certainly it um, is the case that permanent supportive housing like the Times Square is sort of an essential part of, I will just say what every community needs to have with respect to its range of housing options. There are people in all of our communities who need uh, affordable housing plus support. And uh, many of them single adults, you know, I think our housing, you know, uh, systems in most communities tend to leave out those individuals. And, and that's part of the, the overall problem we're working to solve. But as we built more and more buildings or acquired other, you know, broken down hotels in, in Midtown and former YMCAs and uh, an old lodging house on the Bowery, uh, we were um, struck by how homelessness itself was also increasing. And while we certainly had uh, an incredibly powerful remedy, um, it, it was clear it was insufficient. Uh, I remember, you know, just, you know, there were a couple of different uh, moments, uh, Molly, of kind of like uh, a moral reckoning of, you know, I'm walking across Times Square you know, the bow tie area once and just noting people who are experiencing homelessness there and realizing I have been walking by you for as long as we have had the Times Square open. What didn't connect? You know, why are you still here when we have, albeit we always had, you know, we're full and had a waiting list, but, you know, and reflecting that, I, you know, and, you know, working just from the housing perspective, sort of believed that it would sort of magically sort out building opens, homelessness in a community disappears as people move in. But in fact, there was no linearity to it. 
the people who moved into the Times Square and to our other buildings, they'd be referred by shelters and, and other organizations working on that end of the problem. You know, we were housers. Other organizations had contracts for street outreach or to operate shelters or to provide services. And I, I started reflecting like, why is it that you know, you're still here on the street when we have these buildings and what didn't, what, you know, do you not want to live in our building? So anyway, I, I started, uh, uh, you know, just acting, um, you know, asking myself this question more regularly about why aren't the, the, the dots connecting? And in that space, you know, over the course of a couple of months, when it finally just sank in, that what was the original plan here? Was it just to build buildings for the homeless or, or was it to end homelessness? And as I was thinking, you know, actually it was to end homelessness. You know, and the buildings were to be in service of that and it's clearly not happening for some people. And I don't understand why that is that I had this encounter with this woman who I'd often seen uh, on the streets in Times Square, uh, very memorable because she was, very frail looking and bent with osteoporosis and she'd be pulling a, always this red milk cart uh, behind her and she would sit on that and you know, just kind of look at you know the world in the middle of Times Square and I would always try to speak with her and you know she was never very communicative but I must have left a, a, my, my business card or something with her you know because it turns out that she knew my name but right as I'm in this kind of space of reckoning which again was over the course of months, I got a call from uh, Bellevue Hospital uh, from a social worker there sa saying that this, this woman, her name is Sarah Rayburn, uh, I had told her that I was her next of kin and that she would like to move to the Times Square. And I was like, um, I don't know who that is. Well, one of my colleagues, you know, was willing to go down to, to Bellevue right away to you know, meet with a social worker. And I got a call that it was this woman that all of us knew because it was, she was just it was so troubling to see her. She was so vulnerable. And lo and behold, you know, she wants to move in. And so we scramble around and, you know, the first awakening of like, <clears throat> we are part of the problem was, uh, uh, it's, all right, um, you know, when do we expect to have a vacancy? And then the pushback was, well, we have a waiting list. We have this, do we have, you know, or, and then like the, the 40 pieces of ID and steps that have to go on. I'm like, stuff that I had never even questioned because it was the way the system worked that you needed to have all of this, you know, a, a, an original copy of your birth certificate, a psychosocial examination, a, a housing application. You needed to have that approved by uh, two city agencies. You, know, uh, you needed to have a current TB uh, test. Um, all of these steps, which we just kind of complied with because we were receiving funding from the city. And, you know, there was this, you know, the, the, the a way of, of, of you know, uh, basically complying with the, the, the funding obligations of you know, the capital funds for our building, which meant we had to uh, work with all of these city agencies. And I had never to that moment realized what a, uh, what a web and, and you know, uh, just a, a, of, of, of deterrence, frankly, those uh, bureaucratic processes were for an individual who was experiencing homelessness and needed and was seeking housing. I mean, you could not navigate those things on your own. We kind of 
broke our, all of our own rules, seek forgiveness later. And, you know, the, a couple of days later, um, we, we had a, a, an apartment available, a little efficiency apartment for Sarah to move into. And when she arrived, I asked her in the lobby, how come you never asked me about housing when I was talking to you all the times? You know, I, I feel so terrible that it, it took this, you're having to be in the hospital. And she's like, well, you never offered me a home. And I was like, and my heart sank because she was right. I mean, I would, I was acting like, uh, can I get you uh, something to eat? Can I, you know, are you warm enough? Can I get you a blanket? I was not taking responsibility for the fact that this most vulnerable person was like homeless on the street, a block from our giant building. And I, that was the wake up call. And uh, that summer, uh, yeah, I think we were starting right away, but we were able to sort of organize that summer. Um, a few terrific interns who went out and you know, we, we created a, a, a survey. We asked some of our tenants for advice and just they sat down with every single person you know, on the streets of, of Times Square who would speak to them. I found that all of these assumptions that like outreach teams and others had kind of supplied when we you know, would, would ask about that person or that person, the, 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 the story was that they were service resistant. Well, come to find out everyone who would speak with us very much wanted a home. They were just not even at that point considered homeless by the city of New York because they weren't in the shelter system, didn't qualify for housing. They didn't know that. They just knew that they didn't feel safe in the shelter system. So they you know, were wanting to go it alone on the streets. People were actually making an affirmative choice not to be in shelter. They weren't making an affirmative choice to be homeless. And I felt like in that exercise with you know these interns and then going out and speaking myself with with some individuals that they said you really need to meet this guy he's got so many insights into what's broken came to that was the beginning of my true education and I have to say that was about um, 17 18 years after working on this issue that I finally began to see something that I sort of actually knew from that time at the shelter, ask the people experiencing the problem, what's really going on. And so I just you know, have a lot of well-earned humility around how you really you know, need to keep relearning the same lessons and how easy it is to get caught up in you know, the institutional uh, rules and the requirements of funding sources and um, even what is, um, necessary about it, trying to make a big complex housing project work, you know, absolutely the right thing to do, but it took our actually seeing who it wasn't serving to begin to undo a lot of um, sort of automatic practices that were actually harming homeless people. Talk about exponential epiphany. For all the organizations that are hearing, oh, you have to respond to change, you have to be agile. I mean, I think you have totally lived that. So just talk about how you, you know, made your shifts in approach um, to create, because one of the things that you've done is just operationalize the help, right, in a way that's scalable, and it's so brilliant. It is very much a team effort, and let me, I'll, I'll skip forward, Molly, to why Built for Zero, our, our national initiative that involves 89 uh, county or county regions across the country, is so powerful. It really is designed out of that learning of, of you really have to start with who are the people experiencing homelessness? 
knowing each individual by name, knowing across a community, you know, how this issue is, you know, moving and changing on a, on a, on a daily, weekly, monthly basis, and organizing all of the, the, the resources, all of the actors, all of the people with real commitment to uh, preventing this preventable harm to actually be effective. That uh, it's driven, it built for zero starts with a common aim across the whole geography, which is to get to zero homelessness. You know, we start typically with um, uh, helping communities end chronic or veteran homelessness. We're moving to help communities start with move, um, ending homelessness for all single adults. But it's this practice of a single aim, which is about ending the problem, not about building more housing, not about having more programs or spending more money. It's about driving the problem to zero. And zero meaning it's measurably rare and brief. Not that no one in the community will ever, you know, will, will never have a housing crisis again, but that that becomes increasingly rare and that the community itself is organized uh, to identify the problem quickly and to resolve it successfully and, and, and promptly. And um, after that shared aim, with that shared measure of success, it's about having a single integrated team, not you know, a lot of organizations in competition with resources and you know, for, for resources and in some ways you know, ideologically or with each other, but really you know, signing up to that collective aim and, and working as a team. And then it's having this data feedback loop, which is who is actually experiencing homelessness and, and what does each person need to get out of the situation you know, as, as quickly as possible, driving more and more of the activity toward prevention um, in many ways. And in fact, we have uh, very explicitly tapped into, learned from, been mentored by some of the real giants in global health in the world of disease eradication and elimination. And how do you organize a system to just solve a problem all the way through for everyone? And it's, again, this single aim, integrated team, real-time by-name information, and importantly, a culture of constant iteration and learning. This is not like, here's our five-year plan. This is around, the thing that is fixed is the goal. You know, you're changing it up in, all the time in a rigorous way in response to this shared data, the, the picture, shared picture of reality about how homelessness is playing out in our community. And what uh, Community Solutions does is we you know, have, have this network of communities learning from each other, but in each community, we help uh, the, the team that's formed develop that, that shared work culture. Uh, we provide a quality improvement coach to help groups actually hypothesize small tests of change and work their way into solutions. We help communities. We've created a, a whole range of data tools for the collection and management and you know, to draw insights from, from data. We've been incredibly lucky to work closely with the Tableau Foundation. So a big part of this is training you know, not-for-profit and municipal workers to not just work as a team, but as a data analyst, to use data analytics, to uh, acquire what we say like 21st century problem solving skills that are needed to solve complex problems. Like how do you use design thinking? How do you facilitate multifaceted kind of teams? How do you uh, use quality improvement to rigorously test interventions rather than just kind of, kind of debate or kind of go down blind alleys without knowing what's working? And it's that process, this, um, this method really derived from you know, what it's you know, taken to end smallpox and reduce polio and malaria to, to uh, only a few remaining countries in the world. 
a lot of these practices around people, how people work together and the tools they use are completely applicable to homelessness. And it's been one of the, the, the great you know, joys and you know, sources of uh, excitement in my life to see that our team and these communities are proving what I've always believed is that uh, homelessness is solvable. Oh, it's just like my biggest smile on my face. And as a quick recap for listeners, you know, it's having the singular aim, like what are we trying to do? A single integrated team who actually owns the problem and works together brilliantly, the data, the feedback loop, the analytics tools, um, and this culture of constant iteration and learning, which, you know, any organization anywhere uh, would stand to benefit from. Um, Roseanne, talk about big part of the drag on this is that people think it's an intractable problem. They're like, this can't happen. These people want to be homeless. There's a lot of um, things that need ideas that need to be debunked, if you will. So maybe share with us um, some of the big challenges you're excited to overcome, particularly in some of the big cities. And then also segue, you know, what can folks listening do? As you just noted, Molly, I think maybe the biggest barrier to solving the problem is this just accepted belief that it's not a solvable problem. It lets us all off the hook. If we have no expectation that this is solvable, we, we don't elect people who actually you know, get the job done of pulling people together and uh, insisting that all of the community's resources and efforts are reducing homelessness. We continue to give money to organizations who may be off doing their own thing, as opposed to really working as a team across their community to get to a common result. Um, we, you know, uh, I think it makes us feel that supporting new housing projects really doesn't matter because the problem's so big, what's the next project gonna do anyway? So it, it allows, I think communities to stay adrift in terms of modernizing and making more uh, responsive to reality, the kinds of housing options that are available to people. So this, this idea that it's not solvable really allows a lot of self-fulfilling behavior to occur. So job number one is understand that this is solvable. What we like to point out is because homelessness is so visible, it, it has, it, it, it's unlike other forms of poverty. You know, we, it, it, we, we, we're, we know that it's persisting. And it's therefore hard for communities, even places that are making good progress, to understand that um, things may be going in the right direction. So it's really important for citizens to want transparent data. Um, That could be one of the most powerful things you do. You'd be talking to your mayor, county executive saying, why isn't it on our city or county's website? How many people exactly are experiencing homelessness? And is the number going, you know, it, it, it going down? And what are you doing? And, and the, the, the groups who are working on this issue, what are you doing this month to you know, improve on what was happening last month? I think this transparency of data, which can be something that citizens actually participate in you know, expecting and demanding, will, could, could be an incredibly powerful way of getting communities on the right track, but also of showing the progress that is being made, because this is a long journey. And uh, it's, it's easy to fall back into that trap of nothing works if you don't see you know, how the, the situation is actually moving and changing and have no 
kind of insight into you know the the uh, the flow. We certainly would say if your community is not in built for zero, we would you know be excited to have you know uh, we're, we're going to cap out we're at 89 at 110 communities by next uh, spring because our mission over the next few years is to get the country to a tipping point, and we want to show in a very wide range of uh, including very large cities how the job is done. And so we're going to be focusing our effort. But that doesn't mean that if your community isn't part of Built for Zero, it can't be working in the same way, which is what's the single shared aim? Are all the organizations working together? Do you have by name, real time information on how the problem is moving and changing? Those are the things to be demanding and asking for. Simultaneously with digging deep into these uh, large and a whole range of communities because homelessness does not discriminate. We have homelessness in rural communities and suburban communities and, 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 and communities of every size. But we do know that in large cities, it just, you need a much bigger table, you know, just uh, the, the, the number of organizations involved, uh, the numbers of people experiencing homelessness. And so in the large cities, we're working in about you know, 16 very large cities. What we find is you, you need to break the problem down almost regionally, you need to have much more uh, frequent meetings, uh, case conferencing meetings than, you know, in in smaller communities where, you know, maybe once or twice a week, uh, the the whole team can come together and uh, check progress and and assign new action steps. There are housing supply challenges in these uh, larger communities. Uh, Our own team in the Built for Zero communities is is, uh, really leaning into helping these communities acquire existing hotel and other hospitality properties and uh, market rate multifamily properties so that we can actually help those communities widen the array of not-for-profit owned housing available to them that will be permanently linked to a healthier housing system that is quickly identifying people in housing crisis, helping them to remain housed or quickly helping them to you know, move into a new stable place. So these are some of the things that we're working on that could absolutely be you know, supported and need support in any community, uh, support for new housing projects. But I'd say, you know, just to reinforce Molly, support for really knowing what's going on and accountability, busting the myth that this is a, 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 an impossible problem to solve. It, it's probably interesting for most folks to be aware that in no community, even communities that feel particularly overwhelmed, do those experiencing homelessness represent more than a fraction of 1% of the population. This is totally a last mile problem that is solvable, but it requires this fierce collaboration, data-driven accountability, and and just relentless commitment to this shared aim. And and to, to frankly, stop doing things that aren't working and keep iterating toward things that are. Oh, so amazing. And if it, we need to say this one more time, if we're not part of the solution, we're part of the problem. And Rosanna's just outlined each and every one of us can play a role. And it, it is something that um, brings me great hope, having seen particularly your success and recognition over the, the past year, Roseanne, that um, this is something in my lifetime we will put behind us. And so 
gosh, kudos to you. There's so, there's so many resources and so many amazing stories of this actually in action at community.solutions. I want to bring it back to you, Roseanne, when you think about, um, you know, gosh, all that you've done for folks, um, what's the biggest compliment someone has given you? A couple of years ago, uh, one of my colleagues relayed to me, staff member at a, 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 another organization, which we absolutely you know, admire and work closely with, said to her, you guys really want to end homelessness. That's it. I'm like, yes, yes. I'm glad somebody recognizes it. That is the driving force. And it's so possible. But I was like, that, that made me smile more than anything else, Molly. I love it. I love it. You have been very generous and I appreciate you talking a bit about yourself, which I know you normally don't do. So is there a particular top takeaway you have from kind of hearing yourself recount all you've been through these past decades? Don't let anyone tell you that this isn't a solvable problem and look to the fragmentation of, you know, our response as, as the real problem to be solved. I will just add to that fragmentation issue. I think we all know that that's everywhere. And that's part of the um, sort of stress and distress of, of, of life these days that uh, it just, we make it hard for, you know, very essential things to happen. And uh, what if we, what if we made it simpler? We wouldn't have homelessness. We would have, um, I think, communities less at odds with each other. Nice. Uh, and on a personal note, what was it like for you to share your journey today? Well, uh, I, I, it, it isn't something that I usually do, but uh, I hope that uh, I, even listening to myself, uh, I hope that it, it's um, going to be helpful to me in this big question that we, you know, are always having to face into, which is, um, how to bring others in the field along and not to feel critiqued if we're saying, yeah, you know, like what you're, what got you here won't get you there. Um, you know, I certainly have, you know, spent a lot of time, you know, with the best of intentions doing things that prove not to be helpful in the end. And so I think being, having a chance to remind myself of that, uh, really helpful uh, as I think about these important conversations that I have to be more skillful about Molly in bringing others in the field from maybe a defensive place to a place of, of, you know, greater learning and acceptance that we can all do better together. Roseanne, I appreciate you. You are inspiration. Uh, you are a leader of leaders. I have learned so much from you. You know, I am cheering uh, so loudly for you and your team. Um, I'm here to help you any way I can. Um, I want to thank you for being part of the solution in the biggest way and, um, and take good care. Thank you, Molly. Oh my gosh. Can you imagine we have people like this on the planet? It's unbelievable. Okay, folks, my thought for the week, and it's a question for you. How would it feel if you didn't have a safe place to sleep tonight? And that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in please be part of the solution and kindly share this show. Amplify Roseanne's voice. Reflect on your own top takeaways. And no, I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality, essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life. <laughs>